Good morning. I'm Ralph Wagonet, and I usually don't attend this particular service, though sometimes you'll spot me around, and I'm here today as the preacher, and it's a great privilege to be that. So before we go, proceed into the Word, let's begin with prayer. Father, God has descended to earth below, not merely to earth generically, but here, as you've come into this place. You are here by your Spirit and the power of your Word. And we ask that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would open your Word to us, that you would illumine our hearts, that you would help us to hear what we need to hear and to respond to it in a way that's fitting. Show us yourself. Show us ourselves. Show us your grace and your mercy and your love toward us and equip us to do what you've called us to, Father. Bless this time for that purpose. And if anything unhelpful is said, Father, here may be forgotten quickly. But for all that's of you, may it take deep root in our lives and bear rich fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began... A study of the prologue of the Gospel of John for Advent series as Joe Haugen opened with chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 of the Gospel of John. I mean, these verses we are introduced to the word, the Logos, which has been with God and is God and through whom all things are created. This word is the inner thought and outward expression of the very nature of God and is the means by which the universe and everything in it were created. One would think, therefore, that the word would be in complete harmony with that which has been created, since, after all, he created it. But as John tells us in today's passage, though the word was the source of all that we are as human beings, human beings do not conform to that purpose. The word is life and light. We are darkness and death. This is a problem. For the created order should, not, should be aligned with the character and the nature of the creator, and it is not. God has a solution to this problem, and John begins in these few verses to show us how that solution will be worked out in an unexpected way, a way which we celebrate in the Advent season as we look forward to the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the word of God. Let's begin with reading the passage again. John 1, 4 through 9 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives life which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So in the Word was life. We know that life was in the Word because we know that the Word created life. In Genesis 1, God spoke and said, Let there be for all that lives, plants, animals, ourselves, human beings. God's Word said that these should exist, so they did. Alive, fruitful, multiplying over the earth. The only reason that life exists today is because God's word said that it should be, 
and his word contains life and is capable of creating life where there is nothing but dead matter. In our society, however, the prevailing assumption is that life just happened. It's an emergent property of matter, to use a sophisticated sounding phrase. If we find water on a planet, we assume that the spontaneous origin of life is possible or even likely. Water plus whatever dirt is near at hand, given sufficiently long period of time, will produce life. Stir and irradiate mud long enough and bacteria will emerge and from them birds, bees, sharks, clams, redwoods and roses are all plausible outcomes. At least they are plausible to the modern mind, which must have an explanation for everything that does not require God. But supposing we actually try this in the real world, we'll make it easy on ourselves. Instead of mud, we'll use a steak, a big chunk of what was not so long, a living, long ago a living cow. With all the proteins and the fats and the other chemicals needed for life and all of them in one place together in a nice organized fashion. And we'll stir the steak in together with water and we'll expose it to radiation and like was found on the early earth and we should get life, correct? Um, after all, it's got all the necessary components, the raw materials that we need. But we know that water plus steak stirred and irradiated for as long as we want won't produce a cow or anything like it. It will produce broth which will then deteriorate into gunk. No life. To say that life is an emergent property of matter is to ignore the fact that the universe tends toward disorder, not order. Complex systems don't arise out of simple ones if we stir long enough. Instead, they are destroyed by the stirring. To say that life is an emergent property of matter is like saying that stories are an emergent property of Scrabble letters. Or music is an emergent property of noise. Stir, long enough, stir letters together long enough and you'll have the Bible. Mix enough noise together and you'll have Beethoven. But life doesn't just happen any more than the Bible just happened or Beethoven just happened. The people of Jesus' day knew this full well. When Lazarus died, no one expected that given time his body might return to life. His sister Martha told Jesus that Lazarus' body had begun, been in the tomb for four days and that it was beginning to smell. Rot had set in. A dead body plus time produces rot, decay, deterioration, and finally nothing but bones, not life. But Jesus said one simple sentence, Lazarus, come out, and all that process was reversed. The rot ceased. The disease that caused Lazarus' death disappeared from the corpse. Cells were reanimated, bodily functions restored, his heart started beating, blood pressure returned to normal levels, his lungs started taking in air, his brain began to function normally again, and Lazarus came out of the grave. Jesus' command accomplished what no amount of time plus raw materials could accomplish. It created life. His word did what God's word did at creation because in the word is life and all life derives from the word. 
In Ezekiel 37, God shows Israel through the prophet Ezekiel what this means for them, why it matters that his word is life. God told Ezekiel to prophesy over a valley filled with dry bones. They're not merely dead, they are dry. They have been there a long time. He told Ezekiel to say to these dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and you shall cause, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that's what Ezekiel did. And in his vision, he saw the word of God raise up a great army on the dried bones, an army filled with God's Spirit, the word of God given through Ezekiel and his vision turned dead bones into a mighty living army. God then went on to say that this was no mere vision, that it was a promise as well. That one day God would indeed bring dead bones to life and the dead bones of his people would live and he would breathe his spirit into them and they would then truly live. The Israelites felt themselves lost and without hope. God affirmed that they would be restored by his power and live in his presence in the land in which he would give them. The life that God is promising here to Israel is more than just bodily life. He's not simply putting flesh on dry bones, amazing though that is. He's filling them with his spirit, giving them spiritual life. Even as Paul described in Ephesians 2, as Paul tells us there, the fact that our bodies will die is not our biggest problem. Rather, as we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, And you were dead, Paul says, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all... among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All humanity has been dead in our trespasses and sins since the beginning of our race. God told Adam that on the day he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And indeed, on the day that they ate, they died spiritually. And they and all their children since then have been spiritually dead. This is the story of the human race. And just as we could only be made physically alive by the Word of God, so we can only be made spiritually alive as we are united with the Word, Christ Jesus, by the mercy of God. In the Word, and in Him alone is life. Not only biological life, but spiritual life, and it is only by His power that we live. John goes on to tell us, this life is the light of men. 
Without the life of the word of God, we will be blind and unable to see. This is no surprise if we think of biological life. Dead bodies don't see much. But it's equally true of spiritual life. We can see this in what is at first hearing a rather rather obscure sounding statement of Jesus in Luke 11, 34-35, where Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Jesus says this shortly after he cast a demon out of a man, and some people responded that he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, that is, the devil. They saw a wonderful miracle in which Jesus cast out a demon that had been keeping a man from speaking, and all they could see was a work of the devil. So Jesus warned them that their eyes were bad. The Pharisees were looking at things with spiritually dead eyes, and thus they only saw darkness. They were so full of darkness that they couldn't even see God at work when Jesus was performing a miracle right in front of them. Had their eyes been spiritually alive and healthy, they would have recognized God at work, and they would have seen rightly and been filled with light of the revelation of God's power in Jesus over demons. There are a lot of places like this in Scripture where spiritually dead people reject the light that would enable them to see God at work. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, far from seeing the power of God at work in Jesus, all the Jewish leadership could see was another reason to kill Jesus, lest he get a greater following still. When Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, all the Jewish leaders saw was a violation of the Sabbath law. When the apostles healed a lame man and later were miraculously set free from prison, all the Jewish leaders could see was competition. Here were some people that were competing for mindshare in the Jewish religious community. Spiritually dead eyes are blind to the work of God and cannot see it at all. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, when Nicodemus came to visit him one evening, unless one is born again, that is to say, made spiritually alive, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And yet, as John tells us, the light shines in the darkness. In a world of spiritually dead people, people whose eyes are dark, the light still shines. The psalmist proclaimed, the heavens declare the glory of God. And as Gerald told us last week, the word of God came to the prophets and they conveyed the light to the people. And in Romans 1, 19-23, Paul affirms, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things.
The light shines clearly in creation. From galaxies to hummingbirds, roses to sequoias to dolphins to a sunrise to a baby learning to crawl. And anyone with eyes to see can see it. God shows himself continually in the world. But those who are spiritually dead do not see it, for they refuse to see it. Their hearts are darkened, and no light penetrates. The ESV, with most modern translations, says at this point, the darkness has not overcome it. That is to say, has not overcome the light. More literally, this could be read, the darkness has not taken hold of it. If we accept the ESV's reading, it would mean that the darkness is striving to capture and extinguish the light, and so far has failed to do so. John could be saying this, and it's certainly true that this is what the darkness is in fact trying to do, but I don't think that John is intending chiefly to communicate this. I think his meaning is better captured by the New American Standard in King James, which read, the darkness has not comprehended it. The darkness has not comprehended the light. This is analogous to our own use of the word grasp, which is something like what this verb means, to take hold of, to grasp of something. And we can, on one hand, we can grasp something like I can grasp the pew, or we can conceptually grasp an idea, which is to say we can comprehend it, we can understand it. And so I think that what, Paul, what John is really telling us here is that the light shines in the testimony of nature and in the words of the prophets and supremely through Jesus Christ, and the darkness doesn't get it. It can't, or even it refuses to, grasp what the light is about. We have a great example of this willful rejection of the light in John chapter 9. Though it's a bit of a long read, it contains some humor, and it makes the point so well that I'm going to read the whole chapter. So if you want to follow along with me, turn to John 9 as I begin reading, starting right at the beginning. As he... Jesus, that is, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice how Jesus here mentions himself as being the light of the world again. He's drawing directly off of what John has said about him already. And he's talking about day and night, a spiritual day and spiritual night that are caused by his presence or his absence. So having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So half of the victory over darkness is visible right here as the man sees where he once could not. But we'll notice as we continue reading that the other half has also been one, that he sees with spiritual eyes as well. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? I, he said, I do not know. 
They brought him to the Pharise they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? See how we've got a battle here between light and darkness. They are in combat at this moment between two groups. And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. This, by the way, is an effort to twist his arm into telling the truth, but what they're really looking for is tell us what we want to hear. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are Moses, disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered him, to him, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and he, it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. We see the battle between light and darkness clearly portrayed here. Jesus gave us the heads up up front by telling us that he is the light of the world and that his work of healing is that the light might shine in the world. The blind man sees now. Sees biologically, he sees spiritually. He no longer walks in either physical or spiritual darkness. But his parents 
were in the dark. They said as much. Their blindness was deliberate. They chose blindness because they feared the dangers of seeing. If they had allowed themselves to see what God was doing through Jesus, they might have been cast out of the synagogue. So they chose instead to be blind and proclaimed that they were in the dark regarding how their son came to see. The Pharisees were in the dark as well. And we can see the battle within them. There were some among them who thought, who saw enough of the light to ask how Jesus could be considered a sinner if he had healed a man born blind. The same question that the, that the man healed later on posed. But these voices were soon drowned out by the others. They dared not see. They had already declared that anyone who follows Jesus would be cast out of the synagogue. So to have admitted that they were wrong and that an unschooled man whom they despised was right would have risked destroying their standing in the community. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us? Adequately reflects their opinion of the situation. Pride had blinded them and left them in utter darkness. Jesus expected this, as he said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus came as a judge, not by pronouncing judgment on sinners, but by simply shining. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness condemns itself by its reaction to the light. By refusing to comprehend that God's glory was being displayed, the darkness showed itself to be spiritually dead. So what does God do about this darkness? Well, what we saw and what John tells us is that he sent a witness. There was a man sent from God, John tells us, whose name was also was John. This was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Before Jesus came, God sent John as a witness to the light. When you think about it, this is a little bit odd. Normally, you wouldn't think that a light would require the testimony of someone. If someone flipped off these switches here, you wouldn't need for me to tell you that it was dark. Yeah, I swear to it by witness. No, you wouldn't need that. You'd know. But not if you were blind. So John is sent ahead of Jesus to a nation of people who are for the most part spiritually blind to tell them that the light is coming, to let them know that they should be expecting to see the Word of God at work. John's message was for them to open their eyes and see the light of Jesus, or if they can't see, to at least to admit that they are blind. A sample of John's testimony is given later in John 1, beginning in verse 19 of John 1. We read, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to them, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, 
the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, John is a voice crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. The straight way that he wants Israel to make for God is the way to their heart. John was sent with a baptism of repentance of sin so that they, by repenting from their sin, the people might eliminate the roadblocks in their hearts to seeing the light of Christ. His message was that the people should repent of their pride, their self-centered agendas, their desire to be in control, and any other sins that stood between them and God so that they would be able to believe Jesus and receive the light that shone from him. Even today, our first step to being able to comprehend the light is to admit to God that we have been blinded by our sins and that we cannot see the light of God in Jesus. John delivered this message to the Pharisees, but they were more interested in discussing John's credentials. This preoccupation with credentials is a convenient way of blinding oneself to the light. When confronted with an unpleasant message, attack the credentials of the messenger. Nevertheless, the Pharisees were still accountable for what they had been told. When they later challenged Jesus to prove his credentials in Matthew 21, 23-27, he referred them back to John's testimony. As it says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Preoccupied with their own status, the Pharisees could not admit that John's witness to Jesus was true. But equally concerned with their safety, they couldn't say that it was false. So they were left in the dark, ignorant of Jesus, ignorant of John. The light shines in the darkness. John witnessed to it. Jesus displayed it. But the darkness does not comprehend it. Instead, it asks for credentials. And the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Having told, through John the Baptist, the people that the light was coming into the world, God now sends the light into the world to overcome the darkness. 
The same word that spoke creation into existence is sustains everything through all time and space entered time and space. The word that spoke through the prophets declaring the nature and purposes of God and instructing his people on how to they should live because uh, became one of those people and lived among us. As a baby boy, born of poor parents, born of a virgin in suspicious circumstances, in a manger, in a strange city. And as it was then, so it is today, the darkness doesn't get it. For some of us, this failure to comprehend is simply because we don't know God. We don't know how closely he identifies with the poor and the downtrodden, how condescending and gracious he can be to unworthy people like us. We could believe that the true light would enter the world as a laser or as a lightsaber with power to coerce or destroy its enemies, but to hear that the creator of the universe would stoop so low as to become a helpless baby who can't even care for, let alone defend himself, is simply inconceivable. It's utterly outside our comprehension, and we simply don't get it. But some of us fail to comprehend because we're afraid to acknowledge the possibility that Jesus could, in fact, be the incarnation of the true light. If Jesus is truly the word of God become baby boy, then it makes it impossible for me to believe that my importance comes from my physical strength, my age, my wealth, my eloquence, my social standing, my skills. For the baby Jesus had none of these. It means that not only is there a God I have to bow down to, but there is a baby that I have to bow down to as well. By choosing to enter the world in this way, the word of God puts a knife to our pride, and rather than endure this, we may prefer to live in a darkness that refuses to see it. But refusing to bow down to the baby doesn't have to keep us from celebrating Christmas. We celebrate all right, with Black Friday discount prices on the latest electronic gadgets and songs about snow and reindeer, with chubby Santas in the malls and parties to overeat at so we can become just like him, with artificial holiday trees in our living rooms and plastic snowmen on our yards, with shows about Grinches and cards in the mail about family vacations and how our children are doing in school, but not so much about Jesus. If we want to be blind to what God is doing in the Incarnation, perhaps the best strategy we could adopt would be to immerse ourselves in the contemporary secular celebrations of Christmas. For there is little in these celebrations that would remind us of who Jesus was or why he came. Now, there may be a few houses with manger scenes on people's lawns, or a few Christmas cards that actually mention Jesus or have a Bible verse in them. There may be a few songs playing in the stores that dare to announce the coming of the Lord, if anyone can hear them over the hubbub. But if we are trying to not see God shine on our lives, it's usually easy to ignore these. But sometimes God breaks through. He broke through to bored shepherds in a field listening to sheep bleat when suddenly a blinding angel appeared to them with a remarkable message backed up by a heavenly army that was proclaiming the glory of God. 
God broke through to scholars in a distant land who recognized in the heavens the sign of a Jewish king being born and came a considerable distance bringing rich gifts of gold and rare perfumes to honor him. God broke through to a man born blind who was despised by the religious leaders but who was touched by Jesus and found his eyes were open and his life was changed forever. Sometimes in the midst of all the clamor, and glitter and busyness in the midst of all our fears and hopes, our desires and regrets, despite the endless stream of urgent and trivial news that blasts into our lives through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the rest, sometimes God breaks through it all and drives us to our knees with the wonder of the fact that the true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. But this can be a traumatic experience. We tend to like the darkness. It makes it easy to hide the ugly parts of our lives and our little lights look so bright in the darkness. But when God breaks through, His light shows all our pleasures and all our faults for what they are. And it's often not a pretty sight. Uh, I saw this kind of thing happen. One day, I was awake early one morning on one of those rare times that I visited Las Vegas. It was still dark outside, and some people were probably just then heading off to bed after a night on the town. As I looked out the window of my hotel room, I could see all the elaborate lights on all the nearby hotels flashing and glittering, beckoning people to come in and enjoy the pleasures within. But as I watched, a glow started to appear in the east, and it gradually became more intense as the sun approached the horizon. While the lights were still flashing as brightly as ever, they were increasingly overwhelmed by the ruthless intensity of the desert sun. As the lights became less and less visible, the walls of the building became more visible, and the cracks in the peeling paint that the darkness had hidden started to show. When the sun was fully up, the lights were insignificant, and the age of the buildings was apparent. So it can be for us in our lives as the true light enters our world. If our hearts are anchored in the splendor of this world, then seeing it fade before the true light of God is going to be a cruel experience. It will quite literally be hell for us to see our illusions vanish and our glories fade as the light of God overwhelms them. But if by God's grace we've already discovered that the splendor of this world will not satisfy us, we may have a different story to tell. Perhaps we've been beaten down by the world enough to realize that we are not smart or strong or wise or wealthy or good or famous enough to have a claim on the splendor of the world. Or perhaps we've gotten a taste of that splendor and found that it doesn't satisfy. We get the good grades. We make the right friends. We go to the cool events in the amusement parks. We hold down the right job. We enjoy good health. We marry the right person. We have a good home and attend a well-known church. And we've discovered that all these things still don't quench the deep longing for something deeper in our hearts. Or perhaps we've had these things and then lost them. We were divorced got seriously ill, endured a church split, 
We were abandoned by our friends or laid off from our job, and all of a sudden we discovered how frail a foundation all these things are for building a life that matters. Or perhaps you broke these things for yourself or for someone else. You caused the divorce. You betrayed a friend. You flunked out of school or lost your job due to poor performance or you got hooked on drugs or sex or crime and are now living with the consequences of all that and you don't know how to get your life back together again. If you're one of these people, the news that the light of life is coming into the world is great good news. You've seen the darkness. It's no fun. You know that even in the dark, your light is nothing more than a glimmer, and it can't last. And that even the darkness can't hide the ugliness inside of you that you are too painfully aware of and can't escape. All the noise and the glitter of the malls and the Christmas decorations can't conceal from you that you need something more than an anesthetic or a distraction. You need a new life. A message that the shining angels brought to the stunned and astonished shepherds over 2,000 years ago is for people like you. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The true light that is coming into the world is not only a light, but a Savior and the Lord. He alone can save you from the darkness in your soul because He alone can heal you and fill you with light on the inside. He alone can make you be a light to the world, filled not with your own flickering and failing light, but with the true light of God that is the life of men. This Jesus, once a baby in a manger, then a crucified Savior, and now a risen Lord, will enable us to see things rightly and love things properly. Under this light, we will be able to clearly see sin in all its ugliness, and sin will lose its power to tempt us. The, this light will show goodness in all its loveliness and enable us to love it as we properly should. The light of the world will ultimately put all lesser lights in their place so that those who tyrannize the world will no longer be able to do so. And as we are filled with this light that is the life of men, death will lose its power over us. And we, like Jesus, will rise from the grave to a glorious new life beyond all imagining. So what do we do? First, we listen to the witness of John the Baptist, and we repent. Repent of anything that gets in the way of seeing the light of Christ. If the busyness and the glitter of the Christmas season are getting in the way of your really seeing Jesus, repent. Dial it down. You don't have to give up all the gifts and parties and decorations and the rest, but scale them back so you can give yourself space to remember Jesus. If concerns for money, health, status, pleasure, security, or the other things of this life are getting in the way of your really seeing Jesus, repent. 
These things matter, but God knows what you need. And if fear for them is preventing you from listening to the claims of Christ, stop clinging to your stuff, trust God with them, and make space in your heart to listen to Jesus. If the fear of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus and setting aside the desire to rule your own life is getting in the way of your really seeing Jesus, repent. Admit that you are not God. You are not wise enough, good enough, strong enough, or skilled enough to rule even your own life properly. And allow yourself to submit to the only one who is. Second, open your eyes and see the light. See the vast power and limitless skill and creativity of the Word of God in creation. Look again at His wisdom and grace in His teaching to His people. Behold the humility in descending to earth to become incarnate as a baby. Look in awe at his death for us on the cross and his resurrection to new life. And if you can't see these things, go to the God who sent the light into the world. Admit your blindness and ask him to send his light into your heart so that you can behold the glory of his word as he has been revealed to us in his creation and in scripture and in Jesus. Third, allow the light to shine in and through you. Jesus told us that we are the light of the world, that God intends to be glorified as the light shines through our lives. As we are filled with the light of the word, it will be reflected in all we do. The fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that are the mark of the presence of God's light in His people should be increasingly present in us and increasingly mark us as God's people. In His high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the word may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The light that shines in Jesus, the incarnate word, is to shine in us that we may be one with God and with each other and that the world may know that Jesus was sent by God and that God loves us. Behold the light. Receive the light. Shine the light to the glory of God and for the blessing of his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the light into dark places and for being willing to overcome that darkness, to break through, that we might see. Lord, we know in our own lives that there has been darkness that has not been overcome, and we want to ask that you would break through that now, and that you would help us to see still more clearly Jesus, and walk accordingly. Help us as we pray now silently, that we would be able to lift these things up before you, We ask that you would work in our hearts as we pray for these next few minutes.